You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Who here has put their little rugrats back in school and then gotten sick? Anybody? Oh my gosh. Yeah, this thing hit me and I was like, I got this. I'm fine. I'm not fine. I'm so sick. And uh, if I don't hug you or fist bump you after service, it's not that I don't like you. Well, it might be that I don't like you, but it's mostly because I don't want to get you sick. In which case, if I didn't like you, I would hug you and fist bump you. Um, so if I cough or go down for any moment of time, I'm just going to call in a sub. My lefty, Blake, okay? <sighs> How's everyone doing? Good? Four pillars. Four pillars. When I came out here in 2013 and said yes, uh, my wife and I said yes, we, we, we will take the senior pastor position here at LifePoint. The first thing God gave me was that we would be a mission-minded church. We would be a church that was more focused and directed towards the things that are going on in our community than we are about putting on a show. And uh, then God gave me this vision on how to do it. And it would be through four pillars. The first is our global missions. That's any of our missions that go into foreign countries and go out from uh, America. So we've got the Philippines, we've got Haiti now, we've got Kenya, we've got Honduras, we've got Belize, we've got Ecuador. These are places that we go to. Now we don't just go anywhere, the Lord, we know that the Lord is needed everywhere and Jesus, the name of Jesus is needed everywhere. But where we go is places that we have people who are willing to go and commit their time effort and resources to already and say, I'll be the lead on this, right? And that's how it began. I had a couple, uh, a doctor friend down in Honduras, and then I had a good friend down in Belize, and that's how those two birthed out of it. And then now we're going to Haiti because of Becky Haas's uh, desire to lead medical mission teams there. Um, we're in the Philippines because Trish Van Alstein, who's now a full-time missionary in the Philippines, uh, had a heart there, and she infected Emily and Frank Ruiz, and they've been leading teams and going back year after year. And uh, we're in Kenya because Trinity Cole uh, heard the call from God on her life and got her whole family involved in it and rounded up teams to work at the Akili Preparatory Girls School in Kenya. And so we've been supporting them. Uh, So that's our global mission. So it's four parts. The second part is local missions. And I'm gonna be talking really about these two today global and local missions. And the local missions are the places, just like it says, around us in our communities. And one of the first ones that we begin to support is the Hope Women's Center. Who here has heard of the Hope Women's Center? Okay, good, good, more of the first service. Hope Women's Center is a place where I call it, it is truly planned parenthood. They are helping women be mothers. They are there to help assist in the therapy, in teaching, in classes, in resources for these young moms, resources for them and their child, and then they're they're post-birth to continue to train and lead these mothers in a godly way and let them know Jesus loves them in the community of of Christ, the church loves them. And so it's just been an incredible ministry. We love the Hope Women's Center and what they're doing. Uh, You know, we support the Genesis Project. Who's been to the Genesis Project? All right, a lot more in first service. Now that's fascinating. Um, First service, we uh, had like 
I don't know, 40 people who've been to the Genesis Project. Genesis Project is our uh, homeless food shelter that is up in Apache Junction. It's not ours, but it's the one that we partnered with when I came out here. And they were doing such a great job, but needed help. And so financially, we begin to help them. And then we begin to send people. And then we begin to send grills. And then we begin to send all sorts of resources, whatever we could. And before you knew it, it's really taken off into something that... Uh, has blessed the people up there in Apache Junction, but it's also blessed our people to go and be the hands and feet of Christ there. We also have locally the Christ the Victor Food Bank. Christ the Victor is the Lutheran church just down the road on Arizona Farms, and they have a massive space where they have a food bank and a clothing uh, thrift store where they give back to the community and those who are in need, and we've supported them from the beginning. And then we have Justin Maynard, who we call a missionary who is local to the ASU campus. <laughs> Now, who believes ASU needs a missionary? Yeah, a lot of missionaries, actually. Um, I, I, now, I'm a sun devil, and I love the school, but my goodness. So they have something called Vision 72. I just went to a meeting a few months ago about this, but their whole purpose is to capture freshmen in the first 72 hours, because if you don't, the school will tell them who they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do. It's not an official document from ASU, but it's as official as it can be without being a document. They'll tell you what the party life is like, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to act, what sex is about. They will teach within 72 hours and integrate this whole new group of freshmen into the ASU way of life. And so Hope Church is literally this beacon there at ASU that says, let's grab them and show them who Christ says they are. Let's show them how much more worth they have than what they can do at a party or with their bodies. Let's show them how much Christ loves them. And so, man, they have, um, what's the exact number? I want to say it's 80 to 100 young people who have graduated from ASU, who have become these self-supported missionaries. And when those first 72 hours hit, they are shaking hands, saying hi, inviting them over. They have a big event that they do where they invite all the freshmen to it. And it's just an incredible thing. That's an example of local missions. And we haven't even gotten to the second two yet, which I'll, I'll mention here, but then we're gonna move on because I'm gonna talk about them next week. But the third is benevolence. Benevolence is the finances we give out to people who attend LifePoint who have fallen on hard times, a utility bill, a portion of rent, uh, food, that kind of thing. And we have money set aside every month that we, we give to those needs as they come up. And then fourth is outreach. Outreach is drive-in movie night where we invite the whole neighborhood to come in uh, free of charge. We do the cars. If you've been a part of drive-in movie night, it's a really amazing event. I have about 500 plus people here. Uh, picnics in the park and Easter and Christmas and everything we do where we go out into the community. And then, of course, uh, probably our most hands and feet one, Life Cares. Life Cares, which is what Evan and David have been running and has just blown up, uh, which is the actual mowing lawns, fixing ACs, fixing... Uh, changing oil in people's cars who can't afford it or can't get out to do it themselves. And it's just been an incredible blessing. So those are the four pillars of life point. Do you think next week, if I ask you, you could tell me what they are? Class. Okay, what's number one? Global. What's number two? What's number three? Benevolence. Number four? Outreach. Well done. Well done. All right, there will be a test next week. Grab a Bible, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. What does this mean practically? Okay, we've talked about what it means sort of 
pie in the sky, big picture. What does it mean practically? That's what we're going to talk about here this morning. And just a uh, preface, this morning's message is in no way meant to make you feel guilty or shameful. Now, whenever a pastor prefaces his message with that, you're like, oh boy, I'm already feeling guilty and shameful. Like it's just, it came on me. No, no, stop it. Stop feeling that way. It's not of the Lord. The Lord never brings guilt and shame upon us at all. More or less, what I want this morning to be is to shine a light on an area that often remains very dim in the church, and that's missions, right? Show up to a new church, and you're like, oh, it's Mission Sunday. They're gonna send me to, you know, Africa somewhere where there are diseases, and people wanna eat me, and I'm gonna have to go because it's what the Lord wants, and fine, I'll go. And that sort of was my thought as I was growing up at missions until I went on my first mission trip, and was like, this is way more fun than they let on from the stage about. Second Corinthians 9, six through 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul's speaking to the people of Corinth, right? He's speaking to this massive group of new believers, and he's reminding them, guys, listen, when it comes to your money, when it comes to the love of the world, the love that what the world can give. Give cheerfully, not under compulsion, not under guilt or shame. If you can't give that way, don't give. Verse eight, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. Now that verse, I absolutely love. He has scattered his gifts to the poor. Do you hear that? Who in here is poor? <laughs> Am I supposed to raise my hand? It's a trick question, right? We're in America, so none of us are poor. He has scattered his gifts to the poor. So often we think of the people who get the nicest things, the best things, or the wealthy, the popular, and the strong. And I love what Paul says here. Don't forget that the gifts of our Father have been scattered to the poor. If you ever feel poor, if you ever feel weak, if you ever feel less than, remember, wait a minute, God has put his spirit, God has put his gifts upon my life. He has endowed me with certain talents and gifts that are directly from him. How am I using them? Am I using them? Am I accessing them? We often forget that his good and perfect gifts and his righteousness endures forever have been laid upon our lives. And so we fall into a depression, we fall into a rut and sadness. And I just love that verse. It is written, he has scattered his gifts abroad to the poor. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Yes! Finally, there's the verse. I've been looking for it. The one that says God will make everybody rich. In case you didn't notice, it's right there. Circle it or get a tattoo of it on your forehead. He will make everybody rich in every way so that way we can be, oh, wait a minute, generous on every occasion? And through us, my regenerate. Okay, 
I just would like to take verse 11, you will be made rich in every way and just stop it right there. If we could just stop verse 11 right after you will be made rich in every way, that would be fantastic. Wait, you're saying if I'm rich, I then have to be so incredibly generous and I have to give it away? Well, then what's the point in being rich? If I have to give it all away, that's lame. Yeah, right? So often our idea of rich, our idea of wealth, and I don't mean just so often, I mean almost always, is not God's idea of wealth. I know a lot of very, very wealthy people who don't have a savings account with more than five grand in it. I know a lot of very wealthy people who have given their lives and laid their lives down and have a trail a mile long of people who have come to the Lord because of their generosity and what they've done. And if you asked, were to ask them if they thought they were poor or rich, they would tell you, oh, I'm very rich. I just want to take a minute here with that. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on some occasions, so that you can be generous when that tugs at your heartstrings, like the little dogs that are dying, and Sarah McLaughlin tells me to be nice. In the arms of an angel. <laughs> you know the one. This is a, <laughs> why did I even try to keep going on? Okay, this is a service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it becomes an overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God. You hear that? Not you. You're giving all this money away. You're giving this wealth away. You're giving your time away. You're building amazing things to help the poor. And this says, I love this. Paul says, remember, because you do this, men will praise God when you give generously for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of their surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God gets the glory. Anything we do on this side of heaven should be for the glory of God. I've heard it, I had a person and a mentor tell me in this class that I took, and I don't think I shared it here, but if I have, you'll hear it again. But he said, on, in earth, we get to touch the gold, but we don't touch the glory. And I was like, what does that mean? He said, well, on this side of heaven, there is gold and there is glory. The gold is for us. We can use it, we can spend it. We can have nice things with it. We can give it away generously. But the glory that comes with it, that is not yours. That is God's alone. As soon as man begins to touch the glory, he begins to put himself in God's place. As soon as man begins to be more concerned about the accolades and the glory and the popularity and people's adulation, he begins to put himself in the place of God. The glory is not for you, and I love this verse, the glory is for God alone. 
if you're using your wealth for ways that help others, if you're bringing it into the storehouses and then it's being distributed in ways that are helping other people, may they know that it is because there is a God that loves them and may your name never come up, right? That's hard. In a country, in a world that is so about personal recognition, about putting your name on the plaque, about letting people know that this is a little something I did, you can touch the gold, but not the glory. So I wanna give you some interesting facts here. Do we have these? There's nobody back there in the, oh, there he is. Okay, fantastic. Worldwide population as of August 2018, the estimates were right around 7.56 billion people. That's just a few of us. The median age is 29, and the life expectancy is 68 years old. So for those of you older than 68, congratulations. You are uh, robbing years uh, compared to the average life expectancy on this earth. Where's my 29-year-olds at? Yeah, there we go. No, Blake, put your hand down, bud. No, I'm sorry, that ship sell. <laughs> what are the top 10 most populated countries? Number one, what do you think number one is? China, yes, 1.35 billion people. Number two, India, 1.23, is it already up there? <sighs> Guys. We're gonna talk, we're gonna talk after this. Number three, United States. Look at that jump, that jump from 1.2 billion to 318 million. Isn't that a crazy jump? That's the next most populated place in the world and you can see the rest there. How many total languages are there in the world? Don't you put it up there. How many do you think roughly? This person says 6,000, 800. 600, go ahead, throw it up there. There are 6,909 languages worldwide when this study was taken. 6,909, of those languages, the three largest are Chinese, Spanish, and English. 20, nearly 25% of the world speaks three languages. The other 75% of the world speaks 6,906 other languages. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that seem like an overwhelming task to go and tell people about Christ? I mean, I can barely speak English. And you want me to go and tell somebody else about Jesus in one of those 6,908 other languages? I can't do that. What do Christians earn? What do you think Christians earn worldwide? And this was a number that included uh, Catholic, Protestant, and Evangelical, and then I can show you a number that is just Protestant and Evangelical. But what do you think the earnings of people who profess Christianity are worldwide? In the billions, in the trillions, in the gazillions? Trillions, $42 trillion is the annual income of church members. Now these aren't just people who say that they're a believer, these are people who fairly regularly attend a church, $42 trillion. And what people give to any Christian cause at any given time is $700 billion. Now that sounds like a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. However, 
It's not even close to 10% of 42 trillion, which would be 4.2 trillion. It's actually just a fraction of that number. And the stats as we go down begin to get more and more depressing. Of the 700 billion, how much is given directly to missions? 45 billion. 45 billion, that's only 6.4% of all the money given to any Christian cause from this study in 2015 actually went out to a mission field. And when I begin to get into unreached people groups and place the gospel has never been, it becomes even bleaker. When you get into the 1040 window and you get into the groups of people where the gospel hasn't even penetrated yet, we're looking at percentages of percentages of percentages. Something's wrong here. Something's really wrong because Paul exhorts the church in Corinth for their amazing generosity. Paul exhorts how they have given in such a way that it has changed the area around them. He calls them back to a cheerful giving. He calls them back to a, a sowing and a reaping that if you give little, you will reap little. And he's reminding them of what God has poured out upon them. And somehow in the most Pop, in the third most populated country, in a place where wealth has become our pillow that puts us to sleep, we don't give. We don't give. A place where people could give easily, we don't. So I begin to think about this. None of these stats are new. It's funny. Five years ago, I preached a similar sermon, and I was looking at the statistics I used there and compared them to statistics that are more recent now, and that nothing has gotten better. It's just larger numbers, but the same type of ratios. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to Africa, an incredible missionary, and on a furlough when he was back in the States, he was asked about how his time in the States is going, and this is what he said. We should not here at home be seeking God as to whether his will is that we should go, but we should be seeking God as to whether his will is that we should stay. What? Hudson, that's a mic drop moment. That's a, wait, nobody does that. Man, this one got me. You know how many times I've done mission trips and I'm like, oh man, am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to go eat food that's gonna make me sick and be on a long plane ride that's gonna make my legs go to sleep and be in places that's gonna be uncomfortable and bitten by bugs that are gonna kill me and snakes that wanna eat me? And I'm just, God, if I'm supposed to go, give me a sign. God's like, you idiot. I already told you to go. Question is, should you be staying where you're at? That's what you should be asking me is, should I be staying? Where I'm at. I just thought that was such an insightful line from somebody because we like to justify our lack of involvement in the world's pain by saying that God has not called us into it. The only problem is this, God already did call you into it and he doesn't change his mind. There isn't a new calling, there isn't a new scripture that you can look to to be like, well, according to hesitations, I don't have to go if I have these issues. If you have a gluten intolerance, hesitations 4.8 says, thou shalt stay where you are at in a most comfortable place. It's a good book. Look at hesitations, look it up. 
It's part of the Apocrypha. <laughs> so, so in a culture that has been so broken and betrayed by religious organizations asking for money, right? In a culture where they look and they say, oh great, there's another religious organization in the name of Jesus is supposed to be helping people, but when we dug into their finances, their CEOs and their private planes and their own buildings were getting more of the funds than any of the people they said that they were helping. No thanks, we don't wanna give to that. How do we talk about this? How do, we encur- how do I encourage you? How do you encourage each other? How do you begin to move in a way that practically makes, creates change for the glory of God in your community? Well, that's where local and global missions begin to come in. The Bible tells us that there is no significant spiritual growth unless you put your money and your attitude in God's hands. Unless you put your money and your attitude towards money, I should say, into God's hand. There can be no significant spiritual growth. Well, how's that possible? It's just money. It's just money. It's just little bills with old men's faces on them. You're right. As it sits, money has no worth. Money has only the value we give it. And here in America, we give it a tremendous amount of value. If you have a lot of it, we give you a tremendous amount of value. Even if you're a terrible person, right? Look at the people that are celebrities. Just take a moment, think about them. They're terrible people. They're selfish, they're mean, they're nasty. Some of them are straight up crazy. But we give them worth because they have a lot of those bills that we give a lot of worth to. And the Bible says, no, you have to put your money and your attitude towards money into God's hands for you to begin to grow spiritually. If you went to a doctor, right, and you said, doctor, I'm not healthy, I'm constantly tired, I'm always getting sick, Uh, sounds like me right now, can you help me, what would the doctor say? He'd wanna know about your work situation, what kind of stress you're under, what's your family situation like, how often are you working out? What kind of foods do you eat and how much of them are you eating, right? He'd wanna know all about your life, physical, spiritual, and mental, so he can give a diagnosis on what could be affecting you. And if you said, no, no, doc, you are a physical doctor, just heal my body physically so I can sleep and get healthy. You don't need to know about that stuff. He'd look at you and say, well, sorry, pal. I have to know about that stuff because the physical and the spiritual and the emotional tie together in creating either a healthy or an unhealthy physical being. And so if I don't know about those things, I can't give you a diagnosis as to what is making you sick. That's sort of what it's like with God. God, you have my heart. I'll go to church. I will believe that you are the only God when there's all these other gods out there. I'll even put a sticker, bumper sticker on my car. I'll buy Christian t-shirts. What else will I do for you, God? I'll... I'll talk to some people about you if I don't think that they'll hit me. And then I'll do that mission trip that's just not too far away and doesn't actually leave the borders of our country. But I'm not giving you my money. I'm not giving you this, uh, my my wealth, my, my identity in my wealth, my attitude. You just, I need you to help me with it. Do you see the difference? But as Americans, that's what we do. We, we look at our finances as something that we need God to bless. We just don't want to give it to him. 
<laughs> Jonah 1.6. Jonah 1.6. I did a sermon up at Men's Retreat called Wake Up. And in it I used uh, half a dozen or more verses where uh, from Old Testament to New Testament, God is telling people to wake up. Wake up, arise, O sleeper. Wake up to what is going on around you. In Jonah 1.6, he's on the boat heading to Tarshish, right? Going the opposite direction of Nineveh where God has called him. And the boat is in a massive storm and it's getting tossed to and fro and everyone's freaking out. And all these guys in Jonah 1.5, 5, it says they call upon their gods and they cry out to their gods, but nothing's happening. And they find Jonah and there is precious little Jonah just fast asleep, it says. It doesn't say napping. It doesn't say resting. It says fast asleep. He is passed out in a boat that is in a massive storm. And the shipmaster comes to him and says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. I think that is the message for the church right now. Church, how can we sleep in this time? We're a year away from another election year It is in what is ramping up to be a vicious, vicious year. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's gonna be ugly. And so as a church, we have a couple options afforded us. We can stick our head in the sand and pretend it's not happening and stay out of it because God's not in politics. We can make sure and voice our opinions dogmatically and annoyingly through social media so that God can change the hearts of people that we have proven wrong. Please don't do that one. Please, let's just. Or we could wake up. We could wake up and realize that we actually have a God that can calm the storm. We serve a God that created the storm. We serve a God that can speak and it calms itself. That's the irony of this. In the middle of his sin, in the middle of his running, Jonah was serving the one God who could actually get these men out of their trouble, but he was asleep. Have you ever thought about that? If you've ever seen an accident, and unfortunately I've seen about a handful of really bad accidents, and been first responder on the scene, and just, just, terrible, terrible images that are still in my head. Those images don't leave you, do they? If you've seen that, if you've been there, or maybe you've been in one. What if you could see the souls of people that were walking away from God? What if you could see what it looked like to be that lost, broken, and lonely? What if it wasn't hidden by their skin and their, their, their clothes, but they wore it? on their faces and you could see somebody who was walking into hell. Separation, loneliness, bitterness, a guilt that eats at them, hopelessness. Would it change your tactic to sharing Christ with them? You ever thought about that? If you could see in someone's eyes the unbelievable pain of what it's like to be separated from their creator, would it change your mind about missions? and about your call. Of those who do missions in America, and I can only get the American statistics. That's almost time to end here. It is time to end. 98% are senders and 2% go. That's the, 
For those who do mission trips, 98% are on the sending team. We'll pray for you and give you a check back here from the States. 2% are the ones who are actually going out. Now that seems a little bit backwards. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's my translation of the Bible. But I'm pretty sure in the scriptures it said, go ye therefore to all nations. Everyone has a calling on their life to do something. Not everyone's going to go to another country. Not everyone's going to go set up shop somewhere in a very desolate place. But for heaven's sakes, we, we, we aren't even engaged, many of us, in our local area in a way that is serving Christ for his glory. I want to close with this. There was a historian of the early church, and he wrote expressing the common opinion of the Roman pagans concerning their followers of this Jesus. Now listen, because this is so fantastic, you're gonna want a copy of this so you can see how the early Christian followers were viewed by a Roman historian. This isn't in the scripture, this is literally the writings of a Roman historian, and listen to his description of the situation going on in Rome. They, the Christians, were intensely propagandist while ever unseen, they were at work. Every member was a missionary of the sect, and they lived mainly to propagate a doctrine for which they were ever ready to die. Thus, the infection, you hear that? It spread by a thousand unsuspecting channels. Like a contagion propagated in the air, it could penetrate as it seemed anywhere and everywhere. The meek and gentle slave that tends your children or attends you at the table, he or she may be a Christian. The favorite daughter of your house who has endeared herself to you by a tenderness and a grace peculiarly her own, she could be a Christian. The captain of the guards, the legislator in the Senate house may be a Christian. And then he asks this question. In these circumstances, who or what is safe? What power can defend the laws and the majesty of Rome and the peace of domestic life against an enemy like this? Wow. There was a time when Christianity was considered unsafe. There was a time when the church was dangerous, not because we were killing people, not because of the crusades, not because of the wickedness that men in the name of Jesus have propagated, a false God, but because they were loving the poor, they were taking care of those no one else wanted to take care of, they were giving generously of what they had to those who had nothing, and guess what? It didn't matter if you were a slave or a king, you were giving gifts in the same equality as the king. You were giving gifts equally and you were loved equally by your creator, and it was said to have spread like an infection. Do you hear that? Christianity spread like an infection. We know ultimately it made it all the way up to Caesar. We know it made it all the way up to the head of the Roman Empire. And then unfortunately that guy took it in a direction that was not good. But is the American church awake in your opinion or asleep right now? Well, we're all part of that church. We're all part of it. And so my call to you, again, no shame, no guilt. I just wish to, sh wish 
to shine a light on an area that statistically and financially gets highly overlooked. But I'm telling you, the reason we are still here as a church life point in this area is because of those pillars that God gave me when I started this. We had no money when I came out here. I mean, no money. We just had a pretty rough financial situation come up, and that wasn't even close to where we were when I came out here. There was $300 cash in the bank, and the savings was empty, and all of the pastors had left. And the last guy who was sort of running things when they hired me said, are you kidding, that guy? And he left because he didn't like me. And I don't blame him. There was nothing here but a few people who were left who said, we believe in what God is doing here. And at that point, I said, starting in January, even though we have no money and we have a $10,000 mortgage, our first fruits are gonna go to these four pillars. And that's what we're tithing off of. Last year, we gave over $140,000, which was about 15% of our total tithes and offerings. We're shooting for 16 to 17% this year of our total tithes and offerings. Since I've been here, we've given just under three quarters of a million dollars to outside sources that don't include LifePoint to continue to help the mission and the gospel of Christ in places where people are taking it. We have sent long-term missionaries and we have sent dozens of short-term missionary trips. As we go forward, I want you to consider being a part of this. I want you to consider where God is asking you to begin to invest yourself. Is it an alpha group? Is it a life group? Is it working alongside Trinity and those at the uh, homeless, uh, the shelter for, uh, the homeless shelter and food shelter and at Genesis Project? This is my call to you as we move forward in this. Next week we'll talk on the second two pil pillars, benevolence and outreach. But would you bow your heads with me as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table? Father, Lord, I fear that wealth and opulence has lulled us into a false sense of security. Your church here in America is asleep, Lord. I don't just say that haphazardly. The numbers show it. They show, Lord, where we put our faith and our trust. It shows that we speak one thing with our mouth, but we, we do another thing with our wallets and with our time. Help us, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, would you shine light on this subject in the hearts and minds of those who are in this room? That you have called and equipped each person in here with a different gift. And that you will uphold them when they feel weak. You will uphold them when they feel unworthy. But Lord, we've got to wake up. We've got to see that all around us there's a nation crying out for the kind of love that the early church gave, an infection, it said, a contagion of people who just gave and cared for and loved one another. Help us to be that again, Lord. Help it to start out here in the desert, in the middle of nowhere. Would we be a place, Lord, that rises up for you, that sacrifices and gives, Lord, that touches the gold but not the glory. We have six communion stations, three up front and three in the back. If you have a relationship with Jesus, we invite you in just a moment here to come to the one that is closest to you and take the two cups, the bread and the juice. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we invite you to come and talk with one of our prayer partners up front or talk with a pastor 
but we don't do this every week because it's part of a religion or a tradition, not at all. We do this because Christ said, when you're gathered together, when you come together as one communal group of believers, one mind, do this in remembrance of me, that we would remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would remember that our strength comes from him. My strength to stand up here today does not come from myself. I am tired and weak and sick, but he upholds me and he will uphold you. If he has called you into it, he will uphold you through it. Let's pray and bless this communion. Father, bless the bread and the juice, the body and the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, which was given so freely, Lord, that we might be in relationship with you, that sin and death might be defeated and overcome, Lord, that we could wake up from our slumber, that we could unchain the bondages that sin had put us in, and we could be set free in the name of Jesus. Bless this communion now. Amen. Go ahead, let's partake together. You can come back and then partake back at your seat. And when everyone's done so, we will close in worship.